I encourage you to open your Bible to the book of Esther. Easy to find. Just find Job and then go a little bit to your left and you'll find the book of Esther. Prior to the American Revolution, uh, when believers in Christ were living in uh, what would be controlled by England, uh, they used a set of textbooks, obviously printed in England. And when they came to America to establish freedom of religion, freedom from tyranny of the king, to practice and worship in their own way, um, they came to Boston with the English Protestant tutor. That was the book, if you will. And uh, so you're teaching your children the same thing you're escaping. So they decided to write what would be called the New England Primer. Uh, Of course, this is the New England. We're leaving the Old England. The American Revolutionary War, uh, the Great War of American Independence, called by a number of different names. But largely, not all, uh, Christians left because of the tension between what the king was mandating and uh, the inability to practice freedom of religion, which is why they came to America. So the New England Primer was a book that was primarily for the American colonists to teach their children. But it was far more than just a primer to teach our children. It was really to lead them to salvation. Um, I don't own a first copy of it. They're impossible to come by, but you can go online and order them. You can see a PDF of some of the first edition copies online. But uh, everyone in this room knows some of the New England primer without even knowing it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my If I should die, I pray thee, Lord. That's from the New England Primer. And uh, they were way ahead of the game on teaching children by rote, by memorization, by pictographs, pictures, cartoons, if you will. And for example, the ABCs, they used a series of one-frame cartoon associations with each letter of the alphabet. So for example, A was a picture of Adam and Eve in the garden, a little pictograph. And the rhyme was, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. A little pictogram for B was a picture of the Bible. Heaven to find the Bible mind. And on it went. And I've always been struck by the simplicity and profound nature of the primer. And uh, again, the most popular book in the 18th century for teaching children. Why would you start an alphabet with, in Adam's fall, we sinned all? It's striking to me, that's where they began. Man is a broken creature. We're broken people in a broken context, and we need help. We need salvation. Now, by the way, there's been a trend in language lately. If you ever took language, you had vocabulary cards, and we'd have an English word on one side and a Hebrew word on the other, and it'd be a house, and there's a, it would say, buy it in Hebrew. House, buy it, house, buy it. House. Well, using imagery of a house... And the word in Hebrew, we learn better because we don't have to translate to English before we go to Hebrew or Spanish, whatever language it is you're trying to learn. So the the Puritans were way ahead of the game in teaching. Well, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. We're fallen people in a broken context. Fallen people in a fallen context. The book of Esther is the story of God's providence in the midst of a broken world A handful of broken people, arguably one convincing a second Jew to be faithful. Or to say it real simply, veiled providence, visible faith. Will you as an individual take great risk to live out your faith in an environment that is hostile to what you believe? 
So how do we then live, or some of the things we're learning through the book of Esther? If you have your Bible open, Esther chapter 1, verses 10 and following will begin. First of all, don't make a king mad. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, uh, <clears throat> he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Ubagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Uhazerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. We're introduced to a powerful king with worldly notoriety. He's had a week-long celebration. Ahasuerus' heart is merry with wine, the text says. The word merry there can mean just feeling really good, or it can mean intoxicated. We don't know for sure which precisely it means. It can mean a whole continuum of things. But he's having a really good time. He commands his seven eunuchs to go and bring Vashti to him. Mehuman is a Persian name. These names, remember, we're reading a Hebrew story about a Persian time period. Keep that in mind in our time frame. Uh, some of the names are a little bit hard to render. Mehuman probably means trusty, which would make sense. And you'll recall from a few weeks ago, Lloyd talking about a eunuch. Typically, we think of castration, but they were also sort of chiefs of staff. So if you've got chiefs of staff that are overseeing the royal harem, it would be someone, Mahuman, a trusty person who happens to be a eunuch who's also the one overseeing the royal harem. Vashti's refusal is not clarified in the text. We don't know why. We just know that she refused. She disobeys the king. And this is just a little bit of a reminder uh, for, from Bible study when you read your scripture. Um, we all like to get into speculations. Uh, we, we've been in community groups, small groups, Bible studies, where you're talking about something, and the next thing you know, four or five questions, someone asks, well, could Jesus have gone to another planet and, and saved aliens? You know, we're all, we're all off in the weeds, and, and I love those conversations too, I do. But what do we come back to in Bible study methods? The text doesn't tell us that. So the speculations about Vashti, as uh, seductive and speculative as they may be, we don't know. So a good rule of Bible thumb is, what is the text saying? What do we know for sure the Bible's telling us? She refuses, and she makes the king furious. That's what we have. A lot of bad interpretation comes out of speculation. So always come back to what the text says. Speculation's fun. What does the text say? She refuses, she disobeys, and the king's furious. The last phrase in verse 12 is, is just piling on adjectives. The king was very angry. His wrath burned within him. He was insidious. He was beside himself. He was livid, we would say in English. He was really ticked off. Her impertinence embarrasses him. It humiliates him in front of his princes, his cabinet, we would say, in front of this big party, and her rejection could also have jeopardized her life. Now, I don't know uh, precisely uh, for sure what I'm going to share with you here, but the royal crown, what we do know, is probably not the crown on the front of your program. That's on, that's on the king, not on Esther. That crown is a typical, we think of a metal crown that's gilded or silver or gold, whatever. Uh, the Persian crowns were turbans, and they were bejeweled. So think of a, a large turban, of some fabric with jewels that hung off it, which would be much more Persian in keeping. It's the only time it's used in the in biblical Hebrew is here 
uh, describing Vashti bringing her royal crown. Um, two other times it's used referring to Esther uh, in chapter 2, verse 17 and 6, verse 8. And again, we have this idea that it's a turban. Just a little interesting caveat. Well, the king's revenge. He's mad. What is he going to do? Verse 13, then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, stop. Now, you either have an M dash, an M dash is a long dash, or you may have a parenthesis depending on which version of an English Bible you're holding. That M dash or parenthesis is closed at the beginning of verse 15. So let me read verse 13 and jump to verse 15. Making sense? I'm going to hold out this little section in the middle for a second. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, verse 15, According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti, because she did not obey the command of, the king, of king Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs? So we've got this long parenthesis in the middle I'm going to read in a second, but the question is, she's rebuffed me, what can I do? You follow me? All right, let's, let's read the whole thing. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, For it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice. And we're close to him. Kishina, Shithara, Admetha, Tarshish, Merez, Marshina, and um, Menuchan. The seven princes, you try to read them. The seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. Close parentheses or M dash. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. So, first of all, um, let's talk about the phrase wise men. This is a Persian story. Daniel, in his time, there were wise men brought to help the, the king with his crazy dreams, remember? And they couldn't interpret them. Let's go back to Egypt with Pharaoh. He brings in the sorcerers and the conjurers to help him understand what's going on with his crazy dreams. So different cultures, you would use this cabinet, if you will, of sorcerers, conjurers, a spiritual type of people that would be wise men. Next phrase, however, is one we're more familiar with, who understood the times. And probably 99% of your Bibles, if you have cross-references in them, have a little letter there. And that cross-reference will have in the margin or in the middle of your Bible, 1 Chronicles 12.32. And that's reference to the sons of Issachar who understood the times and what Israel should do. Now when we read that, typically we say, oh, these guys, they, they, they understood the time. They could do the polling and the data. They could see into the future. Uh, we might call them futurists. Or visionaries, they knew what to do. My favorite uh, title in the recent few years has been thought leader. I go, what's a thought leader? I had an idea. Oh, he's a thought leader. Uh, sorry, I'm a little bit cynical at heart. Um, so we read that and we go, oh, the, uh, we need sons. I, I've heard really bad sermons on we need a new generation of the sons of Issachar who understand the times. I've heard these big lathered up conferences and guys sweating giving the sermon. We need the sons of Issachar who understood the times and know what we should do. And I, That's not what it says. One of my professors at seminary often said he was going to write a book one day called Misapplied Verses God Has Greatly Blessed. <laughs> this is one of them. Now let me show you how easy Bible study is. Look back at verse 13. The king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, to all who knew law and justice. He's talking to the people who know the law. Let's go to the sons of Issachar. You see, the sons of Issachar understood the law of God. 
what the Levites and the Aaronic priests taught. They would have understood the Pentateuch. A king doesn't know the law. Scribes and Pharisees, religious lawyers. And the good side of them is they knew God's word inside and out. To put it in our vernacular, let's talk to people that know biblical theology. That's what they're saying. Because a king's a politician. A king's an important person. A king's over armies and, and land and occupations and sending people to war and build, amassing fortunes. He doesn't know the law. He doesn't know the details of Judaism. This king doesn't know the details of the Persian law. Look again at the bracket parentheses. What do I do because my wife rebuffed me? Last verse 15. According to the law. What is to be done with Queen Vashti since she did not obey the king's command delivered by the eunuchs? So Bible study methods, rule of thumb, what does the context tell us? How is the phrase used? What does it mean there? What does it mean elsewhere? And it always keeps you from getting too far off the rails. Well, these were close uh, men to him. They were trusted. They saw the face of the king. It's a very interesting phrase. We'll talk a little bit more of that in a minute. But the disobedience of the of the queen so infuriates uh, Ahasuerus, he wants to know, what can I do legally? Well, uh, 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 excuse me, Mimican gives him counsel in verse 16. In the presence of the king and the princes, Mahumican said, Memucan, I'll get it right here for him, Memucan said, Queen Vashti is wrong, not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands, saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought to his presence, but she did not come. This day the ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's conduct, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger, if it pleases the king. Let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus, and let the king be, uh, give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. Memucan is shrewd, and he inflames the issue Vashti hasn't just rebuffed you and embarrassed you. She's embarrassed all the princes. And everybody's married. In fact, if you don't do something about this, there's going to be marital mayhem in the kingdom. Women are going to refuse their husbands, let them right. So, well, Vashti said no. I'm going to say no. I mean, this is women's liberation in Persia. They're going bonkers. And so Memenukan expands the king's desire to this far-reaching edict, which is so over the top. Um, the icing on the cake for the reader is the last line of verse 19. Find another who is more worthy than she. And the reader is meant to feel the tension now. Vashti's rebuffed and disobeyed. Let's find somebody else who's more worthy. And readers, after they heard these stories once or twice, they kind of knew the theme. And this is the tension for us when we read it. We're to feel the tension. Let's get the summary of what's happened. They've been, they've been married with a partying for a week. The crowning uh, the celebration at the, the last part of the party is, I'm going to show the queen off. I'm going to have her come out in a royal crown and display, this is my queen. And she rebuffs him, infuriates him, makes him livid. All the people that are close to him, the king's really ticked off. What are we going to do? 
And Menuhin steps up with a harebrained idea. And he says, look, you make an edict. According to the laws of the Median Persia, and you just, you shame her. You trounce her. And oh, by the way, the word queen appears in verse 17 for the last time. It, does never, it never appears again with the word Vashti. He's already defrocked her before she's been put out by this edict that uh, Memucan is suggesting the king implement. Put it very simply. She humiliated the king. He's going to humiliate her. And that's precisely what he does. Um, one commentator comments on this line of logic between Memucan and the king and the princes, and he says, this is further evidence that they were all indeed drunk. It might be true. If nothing else, he's certainly a troublemaker. A sidebar here. Um, for those of you who are in business, who are in a school or church organization, you own your own company, you manage other people, you never make policy in the middle of a battle. You never make a new rule or a new regulation or a new policy when there's trouble. Insofar as you can, you try to make policy in a vacuum. Said real simply, policy is what we always do. Policy is what we never do. Because the minute you start making policies, organization starts to manage policies. So we have a person who's always late to work. Or a person who's using their computer for the wrong things at work. So you send in a big policy. You will not get on social media and at work unless it's your job to be on social media. And you make everybody go, oh, oh I can't check my Facebook you know, one, at lunch, whatever. You make a policy, now you've got to manage the policy. Rather than you go to the person or per people who are not in line, you say, hey, look, you're working here at 5. We want you to be here on time, so forth and so on. So you don't set a policy in the middle of a fight. Policy is what we always do. Policy is what we never do. It's even good in parenting. You start making lots of rules for your kids. You got more than three rules for your kids, forget it. Forget it. If they're not three really short rules, forget it. We had three D's in our family for years. It was dis disrespect, disobedience, and I forget the other D. I've repressed all that. <laughs> when they become teenagers, you have one rule. You have one rule as a teenager. They can't handle more rules than that. You have one really good rule. And then you just the rule for you is don't kill them until they're not a teen anymore. And you'll get grandchildren. So that's how that works. <laughs> Don't make a policy in the middle of a fight. Well, let's go back to the text. The, any event, the edict is then given, verse 20. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province, according to its script, to every people, according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his. Don't you think that made all women go, oh, there's an edict, I'm going to call him Lord and Master. People haven't changed. It's not a fight over equal pay and equal rights. It's, it's, a, it's a fight over humanity and dignity and treating each other with respect, right? It's as ancient as time. These issues continue to go on. We see a grandiose policy requires a grandiose public relations campaign. And the language is so over the top. Everybody, and, and it's, it's really just inflating this king's, king's ego. All the provinces and those who don't speak Persian, we're reading biblical Hebrew, by the way. We want this to go out everywhere so that everybody reads it and they've got to obey their husband. And they can't be like Vashti and disobey their husband because they don't want to do something. The, the author paints in these wide, rich, ironic tones as he's telling us a story. 
the most powerful king, arguably, in the world at that time, is making an edict because his wife rebuffed him. What should a king be about? Building his military, protecting his borders, making sure there's enough livestock and agricultural to support his people, knowing where his borders of his kingdom are weak, if he has enemies, knowing how to address them, whether he should go to war or not, whether he has to rebuild his army, what he's doing with land management, foreign powers, how is his money, how is he managing his wealth, does he have a good cabinet around him? He's swatting his wife with a shotgun because she wouldn't come when he called her to come and show herself off. The monarch makes a ridiculous law because of a wounded ego. It's petty. Well, verses 1 to 4 in chapter 2, we seek the replacement. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. A little sadness in that verse. He cooled down. He remembered her. He loved her, I'm sure, and she was beautiful, the text says. <clears throat> then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. This was part of the edict. We'll find a replacement. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, and to the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Baldwin writes, from the point of view of the girls involved, this is no enviable fate, despite the glamour of travel and the possibility of becoming the royal spouse. Can you imagine a group of soldiers coming up, either walking shod in armor or on horseback or mules, coming up and saying, I want all the virgins 14 and up to come out of the village? And these men looking, checking them out, saying, okay, we want these three that come with. Can you imagine being the parents of those girls and giving them over to the king to take the royal harem? Throughout all the land. Couldn't resist the king. It was an edict. He was the king. He could do whatever he wanted. He guy is placed over them. Uh, the word makeup in Hebrew, the cosmetics here in Hebrew is quite interesting. The root of the word means to rub on. Nothing's changed <laughs> from antiquity till today. We're still rubbing stuff on our faces, trying to look different and better than we are, right? And the matter pleased the king. Shows up nine times in the Old Testament, seven of them in the book of Esther alone. Well, we have this veiled providence and visible faith. Esther is a story of God's providence in the midst of a fallen world. We're fallen people in a fallen context. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. How do we then live? As people of faith, how do we demonstrate that faith? Two Jews, arguably one, Mordecai, is going to step up at the plate and encourage Esther to do something. Let me give you a couple of lessons in a roundabout way, thinking about courage and authority. Courage and authority as we close out this section. There comes a time for great courage. Vashti is a woman of courage. She robust the king. I'm not going to do what he asks. Again, we can't over-speculate what he asked, but it was beneath her. It was beyond her dignity, beyond decency perhaps. She's not going to do it. Brenman writes, Vashti's courage must be acknowledged. She defied the king and her husband by refusing to shame herself in public. Whatever else may be said, she was brave. 
And so the reader of the literature, just look at the story, we're being introduced to a brave woman named Vashti we know very little about. What's that setting us up for? The next brave woman, Esther. So the piece of literature, just from a storytelling, is a wonderful, it's a tension. It's building the sense about, she stood up against the king. He put out this crazy edict. He's bringing all these children to make a royal harem and find the next queen. And lo and behold, the tension, we already know, even if this is the first time you read the story, he's going to find another queen. Who's it going to be? What's she going to be like? And so the tension is laid from the very beginning. Here's a woman of great courage. And oh, by the way, Esther's going to be in a similar situation. But as opposed, as opposed to being called to the king, she's going to introduce herself to the king inappropriately without, a, without an offer in chapter 5. And we'll see that in a few weeks. Her act of courage in refusing to present herself is equaled by that of Esther, he continues. Vashti and Esther made plain... The king is not in charge. Rather, human dignity prevails. Ultimately, at a principal level, I'm asking the question of when you face a problem, do you have the courage to resist authority? I, I don't know how to tell anybody to do this, but in all of our lives, there will be situations where you or I are going to have to stand against authority courageously. I don't know what's going to happen to our country. Uh, I'm a bit of a student of our country. I'm not a scholar. I'm not an academic at all, truly. I know a little bit, just, just enough to be dangerous. But when I look at our country and where we are today, I, I bemoan what we're debating right now. I, I just, it just grieves me no end. We're fallen people in a fallen context. My question for you as a cold follower of Jesus is, how do I live faithfully in a broken system that seems irreparable? That's where Esther's going to be in no short order for such a time as this, right? So how do we live in that context? We have veiled providence, but we're to live visibly with our faith. If nothing else, that's a pretty high principle lesson from the story. Can you live faithfully in a broken, fallen context when you can't see God at work? That's true faith, to live when I can't see the outcome. Um, how do we have the courage to face authority when something might be bad. Israel, um, Rob, I know he shared a little bit about his trip coming back from Israel, but when you go to Israel and you'll see that, you know, this is a 4,000-year battle been going on over there. 4,000 years have been fighting. We're 239 years old. Keeps that perspective. The Middle East has been fighting for thousands of years. We're not even 500 years old. Yet we think we're something. Because God's been kind. He's certainly been merciful. He's certainly allowed, what did Lincoln call it, unbridled prosperity. I mean, we certainly have got a lot to be thankful for, and maybe it's crumbling before us. I don't know. Don't live in fear. Live in faith. Don't worry about who's going to be the next elected official. Live in faith. Smile at the future. Because you have a sovereign king not a human king. The man or woman who occupies the White House is not a king. They're a human leader that is gone like that, as would be Ahasuerus. They're temporal leaders, and they're always replaced by other ones. 
I don't know what it's going to be for you, your child in school. I don't know what it's going to be at work. I don't know what someone's going to ask you at some point to do something unethical or illegal. Or you're going to be in some quandary, maybe against your faith. And right now it feels like the only people that can get beat up on and vilified and with no consequence are Christians. Right? Will you have the courage when the time comes to smile at the future and trust him with the outcome? Courage and authority. The other side of this is to ask and answer the question, for those of us who have power and authority, how do we use it? How do we use the power and authority we have? As a parent, you have it. As a mom, you have it. As a single parent, you have it. If you work in a company where you manage other people or lead a group, you have it. If you own a company, you obviously have it. If you're a CFO or COO or CEO, if you have a title, you have power and authority. If you sign contracts, you have power and authority. How do you use the authority you have? Power and authority can be used for very good, in very good ways, but also be abused very easily. McConville said it this way, what or who really controls what happens in the world? Who should be obeyed when and at what cost? Um, when we were in the Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area, we got to know a lot of people of rank and power. And um, there's an acronym in, in D.C., R-H-I-P, rank has its privilege. And if you're around a two, three, four-star general or admiral, they pretty much do whatever they want. Rank has its privileges. And Cindy and I were just friends of some of these people, and we're, we're in the White House, we're on Air Force One, we're flying in a KC-135 at 47,000 feet, refueling F-16s. I mean, we're doing things nobody gets to do in the world because we were with General so-and-so. And he said, these are my whatever, there's a code word, you know, friends didn't work real well, but these are people that I'm, I'm putting on this plane, and they say, yes, sir. I mean, a, a two- or three-star Air Force general has his or her private Gulf Stream that waits for them at Andrews Air Force Base. It's like Uber. I want my jet ready, and I'm going to go to Colorado Springs and then over to New Mexico and California. I'm going to be back tonight for dinner. And you know what? The, the uh, general's plane's ready. And he flies that jet wherever he wants, R-H-I-P. When you're around people like that, you learn very quickly there are those who think it's all about them, and nobody likes them. And there are those who hold it very humbly and are very respectful of the p position they're in, and everybody loves them. And they know the people's name who fly the jets. They know the men and women who open the door. They know their, their XO really well and down the line. They know the people they work around and with, and they know it's a temporal assignment. And uh, people will do anything for them because they are men and women of moral decency. Earthly authority leads too readily to pride. Those who bear it in wisdom know that it is rightly accompanied by humility, Bremen writes. Listen again. Earthly authority leads too readily to pride. Those who bear it in wisdom know it is rightly accompanied with humility. So when I was in a different chair, a different place in life, uh, I, I had a group of people that reported to me, large organization, and uh, at one point, probably a year in, had this man come into my office. He's one who reported to me, and he says, can I talk to you? Sure. And he wound up a long time to get to the point, and he basically said, look, Michael, you say this a lot, but you don't do this. So either stop saying this or start doing that. 
And I asked a few questions, and he elaborated. Well, I've seen you say this here and here. I've seen you say it a lot, and you're not doing it. Now, if you know anything about the disc, he's a high S. High S's are dreadfully terrified of conflict or making waves or confronting people. I mean, the poor guy probably didn't sleep for two days before he came in and confronted me. He said, Michael, stop doing this or start doing that. And I said, tell me more, tell me how. You know what? Um, Ralph's still a friend 30 years later. I would trust Ralph with my checkbook, my wife, and my children. When I've had major surgeries and gone in and Cindy and I get our house in order and sign everything over and all this, you know, check the I's and cross the T's and make sure things, in case I don't come out of it, what's going to happen to my family and kids? Are they, are they going to be all right? And um, she always says, the first person I'm going to call is Ralph. And do you have some people in your life like that? No matter where you are, you've got some power and authority. And the only way I know to keep that power and authority humbly handled is not to have yes men who are trying to keep the king happy because he's rebuffed by his wife, for goodness sakes. But somebody can give him a dope slap and say, you idiot, you shouldn't have set her up like that. Now, had that been Mimikani, he'd have probably lost his head. But we're not in Persia, we're in America. We're in a body of Christ. Do you have people that will tell you the truth in love? I've got five or six guys that know my soul, they know all my secrets, they know all my feelings, they know my strengths. I don't make a decision without talking to them, ever. Big decision. Never make a decision without talking to these guys. I got some harebrained idea. I'm talking to one of them. What do you think about this, this, this? I call them my wire brushes. They wire brush me. And it's go, you, you know, give me a dope slap. You idiot, what are you thinking? You're, you're, you know, you're just being stupid easily. Or they say, you know, I think that's a really good idea. Let's talk more about it. Let me pray about it with you. And they'll speak the truth in love. And I don't make a move without them. Because no matter where you are in life, you have both perceived and literal power around people, things you say flippantly, things you say mandatory, as a boss, as an employer, as a parent, as a husband, as a wife, as a peer to other people. You exercise power and authority whether you know it or not. Do you do it humbly? Do you do it teachably? Or do you do it like Ahasuerus? She rebuffed me. I'm the king, for goodness sakes. I'm going to get, let's just say, figure it will be 700 virgins to pick the next queen from because I'm the king, and it's good to be the king. Or do you wear it humbly? Earthly authority leads too readily to pride. Those who bear it in wisdom know it is rightly accompanied with humility. To live in that power and authority with humility that says, I need help. I don't know how to do this. How could I have handled that better? Stop saying this or start doing that. You have people that will speak that way into you. Courage and authority. We all have it in different ways, shapes, and forms. Sometimes we have to demonstrate it. Sometimes we have to utilize it. And we see both sides in the story so far in the Bashti and Hashuaris. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Help us to align ourselves to these truths and principles, not just read an interesting story of long ago, but it is your word that's been revealed to us. We can't always see what you're doing in our lives, but give us the strength and the courage to live faithfully, no matter what it may look like or feel in our future, to be faithful to you and to others around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a phenomenal week.